Hi, Tiny Matters listeners, Deboki here. Uh, Just a heads up about today's episode, it tackles some difficult topics related to criminal cases, including assault. That might mean it's one you or a younger listener would like to skip. We have a pretty hefty back catalog if you'd like to check out another episode instead. Okay, on to the show. Around midnight on November 29th, 2012, a group of men broke into the Silicon Valley mansion of 66-year-old investor Ravish Kumra. The men attacked and tied up both Ravish and his ex-wife who was living there, and then ransacked the home for cash and jewelry. By the time the paramedics arrived, Ravish, who had also been gagged with tape, had died of suffocation. A few weeks later, the police arrested Lucas Anderson, an unhoused 26-year-old man with a list of previous crimes. Anderson's DNA had been found on Ravish's fingernails. He was charged with murder, which meant that if found guilty, he could face the death penalty. But the night of the homicide, Anderson had actually been at the hospital, being treated for intoxication and carefully monitored all night. So how did his DNA get on Ravish's fingernails. Welcome to Tiny Matters. I'm Sam Jones, and I am joined by my co-host, Deboki Chakravarti. Today's episode is about forensic DNA evidence, the history of DNA profiling, how it's evolved, and what went wrong in the case of Lucas Anderson. Although CSI or Law & Order would like you to think DNA analysis is as easy as pressing a button on a computer and seeing the words DNA match pop up on a brightly lit screen, it's a bit more complicated than that. DNA, or deoxyribonucleic acid, is found in our cells and made up of the nucleotide bases adenine, thymine, cytosine, and guanine, or A, T, C, and G for short. Sequences of these nucleotides, typically tens of thousands of bases long, code for a huge number of proteins and other molecules found throughout our bodies. And my DNA versus Sam's DNA versus your DNA is all pretty similar, but there are differences. And those differences can be used to tell us apart with remarkable accuracy. This is the basis for forensic DNA profiling. In the United States alone, DNA profiling has led to the exoneration of hundreds of innocent people who were imprisoned. But in the case of Lucas Anderson, DNA led to a wrongful murder charge. To understand where things went wrong, we need to unpack how DNA profiling works and some of the key criminal cases that pushed it forward. For decades, investigators had to rely on forensic evidence like shoe prints, hair, clothing fibers, and fingerprints that a suspect may have left behind at a scene. Sometimes that evidence was helpful, and sometimes it wasn't. But as we learned more about human biology, we also learned more ways to decipher crime scenes, like in the early 1900s, when we learned that people have different types of blood, A, B, AB, or O. Someone's blood type is based on the antigens or proteins that coat the outside of their red blood cells and the antibodies in their blood plasma, the liquid that our blood cells float in. 
knowing a person's blood type is massively important if they need a blood transfusion. You can't give type B to a person who has type A blood because it can cause a serious immune reaction that can be fatal. So knowing people have different blood types and being able to test for them was an incredible medical advancement. It was also a major win for forensics because it allowed investigators to home in on or weed out suspects. But because there are only four blood types, it can only really tell you so much. But in the 1960s and 70s, molecular biology took off. Scientists developed different techniques to chop up, separate, and sequence bits of DNA. In the early 1980s, UK scientist Alec Jeffries and his colleagues invented the first DNA profiling technology, restriction fragment length polymorphism, or RFLP. Throughout our DNA, there are specific regions that have nucleotide sequences that repeat, and the number of repeats can vary from one person to the next. That's what RFLP can detect. Here's how it generally works. DNA is isolated from a sample of blood, saliva, semen, or other biological material left at a crime scene. Proteins called restriction enzymes are then added to the tube of DNA and cut up the DNA at specific locations. Let's say the restriction enzymes cut at the end of the sequence ATCG. Maybe the DNA sample left at the crime scene only has that sequence repeating twice, ATCG, ATCG but the DNA of a suspect has it repeating four times. It's very clear that the DNA at the crime scene does not match the suspect. But let's say a suspect has it repeating twice, the same as the sample. It doesn't tell you for certain that the suspect did it, but they can't be ruled out either. In practice, you need to analyze a bunch of DNA fragments with known repeats to draw a reliable conclusion. RFLP DNA profiling was first used in 1986 in the UK. In the United States, it was used the following year to convict serial rapist Tommy Lee Andrews in Florida. DNA samples of semen retrieved from the crime scene matched the DNA in the blood drawn from Andrews. But one of the most famous early uses of DNA profiling that helped cement its importance as a forensic tool in this country was the case of Timothy Wilson Spencer, better known as the Southside Strangler. Spencer was convicted of raping and strangling four women in Virginia over the course of 11 weeks in 1987. None of the victims survived, but DNA in semen from the crime scenes could all be linked to Spencer. On April 28, 1994, Spencer was put to death in Virginia's electric chair, the first person executed in the United States for a conviction based on DNA evidence. So RFLP analysis was a huge step forward for the field, but it takes a lot of time and it requires spit or blood or other biological material the size of a quarter, just so you have enough DNA. That all changed with the development of PCR, or polymerase chain reaction. Developed in 1983 by the chemist Carrie Mullis, PCR is a technique that makes tons of copies of a specific region of DNA, meaning you can analyze much, much smaller amounts of starting DNA, like invisible to the human eye. Mullis was awarded the Nobel Prize in 1993 for developing PCR, and for good reason. It's an essential technique that I think of as pretty much the foundation of modern molecular biology. Even if you've never done a biology experiment, you've probably heard of PCR because it's used in the more sensitive COVID-19 tests to detect small amounts of genetic material from the SARS-CoV-2 virus. 
And in the history of forensic DNA evidence, PCR made it possible to analyze invisible amounts of forensic material. Less than a decade after forensic DNA evidence was first used in the courtroom, PCR allowed for the rise of a new, more sensitive technique called short tandem repeat, or STR analysis. STR is very similar in concept to RFLP, but it doesn't require chopping up DNA and it uses PCR, which remember, means you can start with a teeny amount of DNA as opposed to, say, a drop of blood the size of a quarter. Even today, the FBI uses STR as the DNA analysis standard. And I should also just mention that RFLP and STR are not the only forensic DNA techniques out there, but STR is still often the most relevant. When we transitioned to looking at the STRs using the polymerase chain reaction, we didn't realize how sensitive that technology was. So we still kind of focused on those high molecular weight biological materials. So we were still doing blood, semen, saliva, and not really doing any kind of the swabbing of a surface of an object at that point. That's forensic DNA expert Cynthia Kale, who has over 20 years of experience at both public and private forensic laboratories and currently works as a DNA consultant at the company DNA Mavens, which she started with two other forensic scientists. It wasn't until about maybe the late 90s that literature started coming out saying, hey, you know, I think we could generate DNA profiles from swabbing the surface of an object that somebody may have held and try to determine who that person was. And then after that literature started coming out, we just saw an influx of, you know, different items like, you know, they were swabbing door handles, they were swabbing steering wheels, they were swabbing table surfaces. It was just the amount of samples just increased exponentially just because we were able to get DNA profiles off of those surfaces. Those minuscule amounts of DNA that Cynthia is talking about are trace DNA, sometimes called touch DNA. I like to refer to it as trace DNA. Uh, I know typically out in the field, a lot of people call it touch or handlers or wearers, but we need to be very careful about the language that we use because we don't want to imply an activity that we don't know actually happened. You know, if I shake somebody's hand, I could transfer my DNA to their hand and that's a direct transfer event. But then when they go and touch an object and transfer my DNA to that object without me ever touching it, that's an indirect transfer event or secondary transfer. You can also imagine situations where through movement, DNA that might be on you can become aerosolized and, and um, deposit on surfaces. That's Megan Ramsey, a biologist at MIT Lincoln Laboratory, a federally funded research and development center in Lexington, Massachusetts, focused on developing technologies to meet national security needs. And so when thinking about sampling these deposits, they're not visible, right? So you're swabbing or collecting a sample from a doorknob or a keyboard or some surface that's a high touch surface where you think there's a high likelihood that a sample might be present. It's very different than sampling a blood stain or a blood spatter, which can more clearly be linked right, to a, to a potential crime that, that might have occurred. It's much harder to say with confidence how a DNA sample on a surface may have arrived at that point. Every time you touch something, there's a chance you leave behind DNA. And the amount can vary depending on the material touched and environment, but also the person. Everyone sheds at least some DNA, but people who slough off more DNA are often referred to as shedders, leaving it behind on surfaces they've touched in spaces they've hung out in. There's also the question of how long the DNA can stick around. How long is it going to stay in that environment? And so there's a lot of studies also talking about the differences between the surfaces, the different environments, 
and so on. That's Natalie DeMasso, who's also a biologist at MIT Lincoln Laboratory and one of Megan Ramsey's colleagues. And we do have a lot of effective collection methods and extraction methods, but as you go through the DNA analysis process from collection to extraction to analysis, all of those processes lead to some variability as well. And interpretation, right? I think when you when you are going to collect a sample, perhaps it's a crime scene, there's a reason you're there collecting a sample, you want to be able to interpret what that sample means. And so all of those factors that Natalie just brought up really point at the complexity of doing that for trace DNA. So the fact that the amount of DNA that might be left behind is variable based on what that person was doing, is variable person to person, isn't visible. So it's hard to just logically draw a conclusion for how it may have gotten there. Could be a mixture, right? Could represent a sample from, from multiple people. And then basic questions about how the stability of that DNA changes over time. So how long was it there? How long would you expect to have found it there? So all of those challenges really are central to the question of using trace or touch DNA. Cynthia, like Megan and Natalie, told us that trace DNA analysis is complex, and so it needs to always, always be taken in context. I've always been a proponent for the DNA analysis process. The end result is the end result. It's a great investigative lead, but there are limitations to the testing that we can do. We can tell you possibly who's a contributor to that DNA profile, but how or when that DNA came to be on that object is up to speculation, basically. So the sensitivity is great in terms of like, if you're dealing with like a sexual assault and you have minute amounts of male DNA, being able to detect small amounts of that male DNA, that's great. That helps that investigation investigation and you are able to make some kind of investigative lead. But the, the DNA results shouldn't be taken in isolation. They need to be taken as just one piece of the puzzle and everything needs to be looked at as a whole and not just focus on the DNA and say, oh, we have DNA results and we've got to open and shut case, you know, not necessarily. So here's where we get back to Lucas Anderson's 2012 arrest. Even though his DNA had been found on Ravish Kumra's nails, Anderson had been taken to the hospital hours before his murder, after a store owner, seeing Anderson outside and intoxicated, called the paramedics. As it turned out, the same ambulance and paramedics that brought Anderson to the hospital responded to the homicide a few hours later and treated Kumra with the same equipment, including a pulsometer, which is a device that's used to measure a person's pulse, and it's placed on their finger. Anderson never came in contact with Kumra, and after months of sitting in prison awaiting a trial, he was cleared of the crime. Three men were later convicted of the murder. And unfortunately, Lucas Anderson's case is not the only one. Another case listeners might remember is that of Amanda Knox, an American exchange student who was wrongfully convicted of murdering fellow exchange student and roommate Meredith Kircher in 2007. Knox spent almost four years in an Italian prison. Much of her conviction was based on the trace amount of both Knox's and Kircher's DNA found on a knife recovered from Knox's boyfriend's apartment. Trace DNA from Knox's boyfriend was also found on Kircher's bra strap. After hearing about all of the ways that trace DNA can end up on things, it's probably very obvious that it could have made its way onto a knife or a bra strap without a person placing it there directly. In 2015, the Italian Supreme Court acquitted Knox, partly due to evidence contamination and a misunderstanding of how DNA transfers. 
I think DNA evidence for so long has been more or less considered infallible. Depending on the amount of sample that is present at a location, it could be to some degree, right? Like if you have a ton of blood from a person and you can identify this is the person this blood is from, it feels pretty cut and dry. But if you're talking about trace DNA, it's more complicated than that. Right. And so I'm wondering where do we go from here? You know, you did talk about how we have to just think about trace DNA being part of the picture. You know, it's not this cut and dry thing typically, but are there other things that you'd want listeners to consider or think about, you know, for the future in terms of how things may change? Yeah, so there is a push in the field to do what's called an activity level assessment where they're actually taking the DNA profile and trying to decide which activity is more likely than another. That's very difficult to do because while sometimes the person who maybe handled the object presents as like the major contributor to a profile, that's not always the case. So the last person to touch it might not be the major contributor or might not show up at all, that you can touch something and not leave your DNA behind. And so if you have other people's DNA on your hands and you're transferring that into the mix, that makes it even more difficult. Really the only way to do like a true activity level assessment is to actually set up the experiments and say, okay, this is scenario one where this person handles this object and places it here. And the second scenario is, okay, these two shake hands and the other person puts the object here and then see what kind of DNA profiles you get from those two activities. So that's the push that I'm seeing right now. It's kind of bothers me because I know all the factors that kind of influence transfer and it's very hard to predict how that's going to present itself in a sample and a DNA profile. So I worry how that's going to be applied or misapplied. Right. So what are some of those variables? Because I do know that like some people, they just shed DNA. They shed their skin much more than other people. So they are more likely to transfer their DNA in an event. Are there other factors? Yeah. Shedder status is one. Um, The type of biological material that's being transferred, obviously, based on the literature, body fluids like your blood, semen, saliva are going to transfer farther than skin cells. The type of contact, so if it's just a brief kind of passive contact versus a, you know, if you're rubbing two objects together, that's going to actually increase the rate of transfer. Environmental factors are going to come into play as well as the type of materials the DNA is deposited on. Sometimes I'm watching like body cam footage of police officers are searching a vehicle or something like that and they're moving things around. If you shake out something over a surface, you can dislodge that DNA from that material and it can be on that surface without either those two surfaces coming into contact with each other. What would be the issue with, like you said, sometimes you'll see on body cam footage, someone shaking out a shirt, you know, in a car. What would be the issue there? Well, if they happen to find an object of interest, like a firearm, and they had been moving clothing around and shaking it out, there's a potential that DNA from that whatever piece of clothing could get dislodged and placed on that surface, along with, you know, if they're handling it with a pair of gloves and then they go pick up that firearm, they could potentially transfer DNA from that piece of fabric to that firearm inadvertently. If you happen to be a police officer and you're out there um, working a scene, change your gloves in between each contact because those gloves can pick up that DNA and transfer DNA from one object to another. In 2018, the Forensic Technology Working Group at the National Institute of Justice called for, quote, comprehensive, systematic, well-controlled studies that provide foundational knowledge and practical data about touch evidence persistence in the real world. 
Responding to that call, Megan and Natalie worked on a project looking at the stability of trace DNA in complex real-world environments and began quantifying how long touch DNA would persist on certain surfaces under specific conditions. So we generated touch DNA samples, we exposed them to very controlled environmental conditions, and we tried to understand how does the quantity of DNA change, how does the intactness of the DNA change, how does the ability to obtain a DNA profile from those samples change over time. So then we can take those results and help provide recommendations or inform best practices in terms of if you find a sample and you think it's been in a hot, humid environment in the sun for a week, what does that mean for your likelihood of being able to use that sample or gain relevant information out of it? When I started researching this episode, I can truly say that I was a little concerned about what I learned and if I would just feel really disheartened about this incredible technology. But I actually feel a lot better. Is trace DNA legit? Yes. Can it be taken at face value without context and other compelling evidence? Definitely not. And it makes me hopeful knowing that this conversation is happening and knowing that we're putting this episode out into the world for people to hear and to better understand that nuance. And knowing that people like Cynthia are working as consultants so that we can prevent what happened to Lucas Anderson. I used to love working in the lab, but I find consulting much more rewarding because I can go in and look at the DNA case files and look at, you know, body cam footage, look at previous testimonies and kind of pinpoint where we have weaknesses and within our system and hopefully help promote, educate and get the word out that the indirect transfer of DNA can happen and that we shouldn't disregard it and that we need to be careful about the language that we use, particularly on the stand, because people's lives are at stake, not only the victim's lives, but the defendant. And if you mislead the jury into thinking that the only way that a person's DNA can be on an object is through direct transfer or direct contact with that object, you're not giving them the full story and not providing them with the limitations of our testing. So for my tiny show and tell, I want to talk about something that actually initially inspired this episode, but ultimately we didn't cover at all um, because the episode ended up going in a totally different direction. So in May of this year, a couple of studies related to trace DNA came out that really caught my eye. One was about trace DNA in the environment, you know, trace DNA that's often found in water, soil, air. It's often called environmental DNA or eDNA, and it can be really useful for learning about plant and animal health and biodiversity and even help in identifying potential pathogens in the environment. But it turns out that sometimes there is enough eDNA from humans in an environment that you can actually determine a person's sex and ancestry, which, of course, raises some red flags, brings up some ethical questions about if it's okay to be just like sequencing strangers' DNA just because they like passed by a river or were in some muddy area or something and and were shedding their DNA. The other study was about trace DNA being found in microbiome testing, which is fascinating and makes sense, but I hadn't thought about. So for decades, researchers have been analyzing DNA in poop. Really, let's just say it. They've been analyzing a lot of a lot of DNA and poop to determine which microbes um, and how many of those microbes are present. And the general thought was that degraded human DNA that makes it into stool, so essentially like the DNA that's not from those microbes, like it wouldn't be enough to really tell you much about the person. Well, it turns out that that DNA is not only enough to identify the stool donor's sex 
and ancestry, but also potential disease risks. And uh, if it's then linked to other databases, it's possible to figure out exactly who the person is. So I'm not bringing this up to like freak people out, but I think it is really interesting and important that people are identifying these potential ethical issues. So both groups are actually calling for safeguards to really prevent the misuse of this DNA, um, what you would call human genomic bycatch, which is really the perfect term for it, because like, you're not trying to pick it up, but you are. And then the question is like, is it okay that you are? Is it okay to still analyze it? And so I think it's just, it was really more like a mental exercise to go through after looking at these papers. But I thought it was fascinating. It got me on my trace DNA kick. That's why this episode exists. But I was sad that we didn't really cover this because it just felt like it was a little bit too tangential. But I think it's still really important and important for people to know that this is something that's being considered. Trace DNA is being considered outside of forensics. It's being considered in a lot of different cases, including microbiome stuff and eDNA. Just the idea that we're just like sloughing off DNA like this and that you can really just get this picture of people. But then, yeah, like we kind of talked about in the episode, like also you can't get the full picture from just the DNA. So there's there's just so many complicated things. Like I have so many complicated feelings about stuff like, you know, DNA testing, like the kind of consumer testing kits. And I still haven't ever done like a 23andMe kind of thing, partly because I'm like so unsure about how I feel about it. And I feel like when I, hear stuff like this I'm like yes I was right but I still don't really know like will it ever affect me I don't know but it's still like super just because it doesn't affect me doesn't mean that it's not important to think about because it's going to affect people in general it's going to affect how we operate it affects like so many different things that happen well, I guess I sort of have a, like, it's not about trace DNA, but it is about studying DNA. And it was an article that I picked out for you, Sam. Um, this is from UC Davis. It's actually um, a description of a research project they did. It is, can golden retrievers live longer? And so this is about a study on golden retrievers because, and this is sad, but apparently golden retrievers have a 65% chance of dying from cancer. And so researchers wanted to see if they could find just like genetic some things. And so they didn't actually end up looking for genetic factors that would correlate to like cancer in the golden retrievers. Instead, what they decided to look at were genetic factors that correlated to a longer life. So they studied 300 golden retrievers, which just sounds incredible on its own. Um, And so they compared those who were still alive at 14 versus those who had died younger, who had died before they were 12. And they compared like the genes and the variants in them. And they found that those dogs that had a variance of the gene um, HER4, which is also known as ERBB4, this is a part of a family of growth factors. Uh, the, The dogs who had this particular variant, they were more likely to have a longer life. So they tended to live on average 13 five years versus dogs without the gene tended to live on average 11.6 years. So, you know, that's a long time that you want to spend with your pet. Yeah. So this is just like a preliminary thing that the researchers were doing. And so there's like more work to be done on like what the gene variant is doing. And they also noted um, that dogs get a lot of the same cancers that we do. So there's potentially relevance for human cancers as well. That's really cool. And I also love how they're sort of framing it in a, like, what is it that these dogs have that allow them to live longer? I mean, I think both are important, right? Like for people to understand what mutations might put a dog or a person like at at a greater risk for a certain cancer so they can be on the lookout so that they can detect it early. Like, I think all of that is so beneficial. But sometimes it's really hard to find 
a mutation or even a group of mutations. And so looking at what dogs have that are positive yeah. versus things that are negative is like another, I guess, just like another way to approach the problem. Yeah, definitely. Because like cancer is so complicated. So like you're saying, you can have like a complicated set of factors that drive the cancer. But can we find something, maybe something a little more straightforward that like correlates to survival? Yeah. Thanks to Boki. I love that. Thanks for tuning in to this week's episode of Tiny Matters, a production of the American Chemical Society. This week's script was written by Sam, who is also our executive producer, and was edited by me and by Michael David. It was fact-checked by Michelle Boucher. The Tiny Matters theme and episode sound design are by Michael Simonelli and the Charts and Leisure team. Thanks so much to Cynthia Kale, Natalie Damaso, and Megan Ramsey. If you haven't rated and reviewed Tiny Matters, please do. We would really appreciate it. Another way to support the show uh, is to pick up one of our Tiny Matters coffee mugs. They're really cool. I use mine all the time. Look cool drinking coffee or tea or whatever. Morning. Nice. Representing. <laughs> Everything tastes better in that mug. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Can confirm. Um, <laughs> you can find me on social at Sam J Science. And you can find me at Okie Dokie Bokie. See you next time. <laughs>